0: Okay, can I welcome you all to this morning's session? Thank you for skipping matins to come and enjoy our two presenters, Afra Magidor and Aidan McGlynn. And the pattern that we'll adopt is Afra will talk for no more than 30 minutes and then come to a cease. And then Aidan will reply for no more than 30 minutes. Uh, we'll take a two minute break at that point. Uh, Afra will get two minutes to make a swift comment on what Aidan has said. Aidan will have the right of swift reply. Both will be shut down if rambling occurs, and then the session will be open for discussion until the cavalry or coffee arrives. Okay, hand over to Afra. Okay.
1: Okay, good. So one of the most prominent uh, problems in epistemology is the skeptical challenge, and it comes in various forms, but here's one standard form. So consider this person, actual Jill. She's an ordinary person in the actual world. Like many of us, she believes that she has hands, that she's not a brain in a bat, and that there are trees there. Okay, and ideally we would like to say she not only believes these things but she also knows these things. Okay, the challenge, however, comes when we consider a counterpart of this agent called her BIV Jill. So, BIV Jill is a brain in a vat connected to a computer that is feeding her stimuli um, that uh, makes things appear to her indistinguishable than they do uh, to actual Jill, and let's assume that she, too, uh, has exactly the same beliefs, that she has hands, that there are trees outside, and that she's not to brain in the back. Okay. The skeptic says, look, BIV Jill has exactly the same beliefs and claims the skeptic with exactly the same evidence and justification. Yet clearly, BIV Jill does not know all these things. Uh, and if she doesn't know all these things, how can we account for the fact that actual Jill does know these things? Okay." Now, uh, it's just worth noting that we can't respond to this simply by pointing out that knowledge is factive, and actual Jill's beliefs are true, and BIV Jill, Jill's beliefs are false, because, of course, BIV, some of BIV Jill's beliefs about the external world might happen to be true, right? If she believes that there are trees outside, it might just happen to be true that just outside this bat laboratory there happen to be some trees. Okay. So in recent decades, one of the most prominent responses to the skeptical challenge has been the epistemic externalist response, okay? which in very broad terms says there's a necessary condition on knowledge other than truth that actual gel satisfies and BIB gel does not. And the externalist response comes in various variants. I'm only going to talk about process-reliabilism, though I think what I say applies to all these other views as well. So process-reliabilism say it's a necessary condition of knowledge that your belief be produced by a reliable process, a process that tends to produce truths, and I've added this clause um, in similar environments, so some reliableists individuate processes very finely and then you don't need to add this clause, and sometimes they individuate them a bit more broadly, but then you want those kind of similar environment description. Okay, so epistemic externalists have been taken in the literature, not least by themselves, uh, to posit this crucial asymmetry between the situation of actual Jill and that of BIV Jill. Okay? One kind of asymmetry that is posited is a rather boring asymmetry. So the boring asymmetry is that actual Jill knows that she's not a BIV, but BIV Jill does not know that she's not a BIV. OK? That's boring because we focused on an actual world agent that happens to have a true belief, and a BIB agent that happens to have a false belief, right? Equally, we could have uh, considered an actual world agent that is sort of skeptically inclined and believes that she is a BIB, and then she wouldn't get to know that uh, she's not a BIB, right? That's not very epistemically However, externalists, I think, posit a much deeper asymmetry than this. (coughs) So before we get to the deeper asymmetry, we need a bit of terminology on the table. Okay. So following David Chalmers, I'm going to use this notion of being inverted, which means roughly being in a situation where you receive your outputs from, or you receive your inputs from, and you send your outputs to a computational simulation. Of a world. Okay, so the thought is that being a brain in a vat is one way of being invatted, but that's not the only way, right? For example, you might be a brain in a barrel. Um, okay, so the reason I want to focus on this more general notion is for in a moment I'm going to ask whether BIV Jill is able to know that she's invatted, and I don't want to really focus on the question of whether she can know that she's a brain in a fat, because that's a very demanding thing to know. That's a very specific hypothesis. That's like knowing that your body is made of cells. Okay? That's a very demanding thing for her to know. I'm not interested in that. I'm rather interested in whether she knows she's in this very general predicament. Okay. The other thing I'm going to do following our worry about agents that happen to have the false belief is focus not on what she in fact knows, but on what she's able to know or is in a position to know. okay? And it's with respect to these notions that the interesting asymmetry comes up, so the interesting asymmetry is the claim that actual Jill is in a position to know that she's not embedded, and the IV Jill is not in a position to know that she is embedded. Okay? So only one of them can knowledgeably answer the question of whether or not they are embedded. Okay, so here, for example, is a typical uh, expression of this asymmetry from Williamson. So, Williamson says if one is in the bad case, one does not know that one is not in the good case. Even if one pessimistically believes that one is not in the good case, one's true belief does not constitute (coughs) a bad case. Part of the badness of the bad case is that one cannot know just how bad one's case is. Okay, moreover, many externalists, including Williamson, think that this asymmetry is what lies at the heart of the externalist solution to skepticism. So here's Williamson again. For the skeptics, the two cases are symmetrical, just as it is consistent with everything one knows in the bad case that one is in the good case, so it is consistent with everything one knows in the good case that one is in the bad case. For the skeptics opponent, the two cases are not symmetrical. Okay, so what I want to argue in this talk is that, in fact, there's no such asymmetry. So the same considerations that lead externalists to think that actual Jill can know that she's not embedded naturally lead them to think that BIV Jill is able to know that she is embedded. Okay, and I just want to clarify, use this term naturally lead. So my claim isn't that it's impossible to have an externalist view without this conclusion but rather that there's a very natural package of an externalist view uh, that goes along with this claim. Okay, So in some ways, you can take what I'm saying as saying that the skeptic's mistake isn't in positing an epistemic symmetry, but rather in resolving this symmetry in a pessimistic way. Okay, Instead, I want to say that their situations I- are epistemically symmetric, uh, but both of them are in a good uh, epistemic position. Okay, so here's uh, the structure. I'm gonna very briefly introduce the argument, then I'm gonna refine it a little bit, and then I'll talk a little bit about some of the philosophical <coughs> explanations of my claims. Okay, so the literature on skepticism has on the whole focused on this kind of rain in a vat that believes that she is embedded. And of course, she's not going to know that she's not embedded while still holding on to this belief. But as I've already said, that's not the interesting question. The interesting question is, is she in a position to know that she's embedded? Or in other words, can she form uh, the belief that she's embedded in a knowledge-conducive way? Okay. So I'm going assume we're working with process and um, another thing I'm going to assume, that I think I don't actually need this assumption, but it will make uh, the discussion easier, so again, following Chalmers, I'm going to assume that this computational simulation uh, of the VAT is giving rise to an ontology of what we'll call virtual objects. So these are kind of semi-abstract <laughs> objects uh, that are constituted by a computational process so that when uh, EIB Jill has a kind of VAT image that... Looks like hands, then um, that's going to be, she's really experiencing this kind of uh, abstract, semi abstract objects that we'll call virtual hands. Okay, so here's my thought. Suppose that what IV Jill does is she has her hand shaped experience in the vat, and she says to herself, uh, aha, uh, this looks like virtual hands. I must have virtual hands. Okay, so she forms the belief that she has virtual hands. I claim that if she does this systematically for a lot of her experiential beliefs, then she's forming her beliefs using a reliable process, right? In environments similar to hers, this is an excellent way uh, of forming true beliefs. Okay? Moreover, assuming following the reliabilist line that you can gain knowledge in this way, she can use this knowledge to gain knowledge that she's invented using another reliable process, namely valid inference from a um, known premise. Right? She says, I have virtual hands, therefore I must be invented, and thereby gains knowledge that she's invented. Okay, So that's the argument in a nutshell. However, I think we need to say a bit more. So, One thing you might want to hear a little bit more about is a little bit about the psychological process that led her to have this belief, right? So that we really think that a human agent can form beliefs in this way. Uh, We want the story about the psychological process to still preserve the idea that it's a reliable process, right? So for example, if she just read in a fortune cookie that she has virtual hands and that's the reason she formed the belief, that's no longer a reliable process <coughs> as they do. Um, so we want the story to be compatible with that. And the third issue is a little bit more delicate. Um, but many externalists want this kind of minimally internalist component to their view in a form of a no-defeater conditions. So the thought is that externalists don't want to require that your belief has to kind of have positively be uh, justified in this internalist sense, and they don't want to require that you know your belief is uh, formed by a reliable process, but sometimes they require that you don't believe that it's formed by an unreliable process, or you don't positively believe that your, be- your belief is inappropriate, or something like that. Okay, so I won't go through all the subtle discussions of how exactly to formulate the no-defeater condition, but I'll assume, following a lot of the literature, that as long as VIB Jill's uh, total doxastic state is in some broad and informal sense coherent, then she'll count as satisfying this um, condition. OK. A second thing we need to say a bit more about is what the phenomenology of her experiences. OK, so I'm assuming it's just part I'll focus on visual experience. And I'll assume that it's just part of the way the thought experiment is set up, that uh, you know the, the VAT is kind of projecting in front of her visual scenes that are sort of pixel to pixel identical with uh, the visual scenes we have uh, in the actual world. But as philosophers of mind have taught us, this description isn't quite sufficient to pin down what her phenomenology is. right? And the reason is that. Um, if we look in a scene like this, some philosophers of mine say, look, um, all that is represented in the scene are very low-level properties, like there's a green patch and a blue patch and a brown line. And if you think you're looking at a tree, that's not part of the content of your experience. That's some extra cognitive uh, stuff that you're inferring from your experience. Okay? Other philosophers of mine want to say no, it's actually when you're looking at the scene, it's actually part of your phenomenology. It's part of the content of your experience that it's an experience as of a tree. Okay. So I think keeping in this in mind, we have to consider three different hypotheses, hypotheses sorry. Uh, so according to one, when BIV Joe is ex- experiencing virtual hands, her experience, the content of her experience is neutral on whether she's experiencing uh, virtual hands or um, actual hands, okay? And this is probably easiest to get if you think experiences that either don't represent any properties or represent very low-level properties. Okay? The second hypothesis is that her phenomenology represents her is experiencing virtual objects, and the third that they represent her as experiencing a uh, concrete objects. OK, so <coughs> let's start with the first hypothesis, that her experience is neutral in this way. OK, so what sort of psychological process might lead her to form the belief that she has virtual hands? Well, one thing that could be going on is that she has a prior positive, doxastic attitude towards the claim um, that she's invented. Either she believes that she's invented or she has a high credence that she's invented. And this, just as a causal matter, leads her to interpret these neutral experiences as experiences of virtual hands. We don't have to go through this general beliefs of being invented. It's also possible that she just has a direct disposition to interpret her beliefs in this way. Okay, so I think this is a psychologically possible process. In fact, some philosophers, some of my colleagues, think it's at least very likely that we are in the matrix. Uh, so, you know, some humans do have beliefs of this sort. Um, I think this process is going to be reliable for exactly the reason that I sketched in the general version of the argument, because environments like those of B.I.B. Jill, this is going to be a good process. And I also don't see why this uh, process wouldn't satisfy the no defeater conditions. So we can just stipulate that B.I.B. Jones doesn't think it's unreliable. She doesn't think she's doing anything inappropriate. And note that the experience itself isn't in any way constituting a defeater, right? By its very definition, it's a neutral experience. It's completely compatible with what the beliefs used for. OK. I'm going to skip the second hypothesis out of interest of time (coughs) and jump to the third okay so this is clearly the trickiest uh, hypothesis for me so this is the hypothesis that her phenomenology represents her as experiencing concrete uh, objects but I think even here uh, we can have a story in fact I have two uh, Quite different model of how she models for how she might form her beliefs in a knowledgeable way. Let me just talk about this <coughs> time. So, okay. So here's the second model. I'm going to introduce it by an analogy. Okay. So here's the analogy. Here's this character, Amy. So, Amy is color inverted. So whenever she sees things like this, they appear to her the way red objects appear to most of us, and Uh, vice versa for uh, red objects, however she realizes or at least believes that she's color inverted in exactly this way, okay? So whenever she has an experience uh, that feels like this, she says to herself, "Uh this kind of looks red but I know I'm color inverted so this must be a green apple, okay? So I think it's very plausible in this case that she gains knowledge, right? She very systematically and reliably can catalogue green object as green. It's true. Does, she, does her experience somehow constitute a feature? I don't think so. It's true that the very thing, the property that her experience represents, being red, is in conflict with her belief. But she has a story to fit them all together, right? She thinks to herself, that's exactly what I expect. I expect the experience to be misleading in exactly this way, and I can correct for that. Okay, so the point is really that experiences with an illusion can lead to lo- knowledge as long as you know to correct for the illusion. Similarly, I claim exactly the same thing can happen with BIV Jill. So suppose that just as before, she has a positive doxastic attitude towards the claim she's in vatted. She has this experience. It, it represents the property of hands, but she thinks, she thinks to herself, that's exactly what I would expect to happen in the vat. That's the sort of thing the vat does. It gives you experiences that look like hands, even though there are experiences of virtual hands, so I must have virtual hands. Okay. And again, as before, I think this will lead to knowledge. Okay. So the upshot is that I think uh, on any of these hypotheses, we can accept the conclusion that the IV gel is in a position to know. OK, so in the remaining time, I want to very briefly talk about some of the philosophical uh, implications of this. Okay, So up to now, I've argued that there is a natural um, externalist package on which you accept the claim that Biv Jill is in a position to know that she's infected. Nearly all the literature in epistemology takes it for granted that this claim is false. So now I'm going to want to assume it's true and see what things follow from that. Okay, so one implication concerns the notion of justification and the new evil demon problem. Okay, so consider uh, this uh, more typical case of a brain in a bath than the one I've mostly been talking about. So this is uh, a character called non-skeptical BIV Jill. So this is the BIV we started out with. So like actual Jill, she believes she's not in and that she has hands. Okay, so the old evil demon problem was just to explain how it is that actual Jill has knowledge and, and not, non-skeptical B.I.B. Jill lacks knowledge, so I take it the thought is this problem will solve with epistemic externalism. Okay, however, the new evil d- demon problem is supposed to be a problem not for the kind of view I've been discussing, which is an externalist view of knowledge but to a slightly different view, which is an externalist view of justification, a view that thinks something like uh, justification is having a belief formed by a reliable process, for example. Okay? So the claim is, look, even if PIB Jill doesn't have knowledge in this case, surely she's just as justified as actual Jill in thinking that she's not invited but this is contrary to what these externalist views of justification play. I'm missing some pages from my slides. Oh, well, I'll to. Um, okay. So how is what I've been argued for uh, re- um, relevant to this? So before I say this, we need two notions on the table. Uh, those, uh, The distinction between doxastic justification and propositional justification. Okay, So a proposition is doxastically justified for you just in case you have a justified belief in that proposition. And it's propositionally justified roughly if you're in a position to form a justified belief in that proposition. Right. So for example, if you're a detective on the scene, you have all the evidence that points to Jones being the murderer, but you haven't. Put the evidence together and you have informed the belief that Jones is the murderer, you're not doxastically justified in the claim, but you are propositionally justified. Okay, so here I think are three plausible principles about these notions. Uh, they're not uncontroversial, but they're initially plausible. Okay, so the first says that if you're in a position to know that P, then the proposition that P is propositionally justified for you. Right? The thought is if you're in a position to know, knowledge entails justification, you're in a position to form a justified belief. Second principle I think is not really controversial is the claim that if you're doxastically justified in a claim, then you're propositionally justified. Right? It's kind of weird to think you have a justified belief in something that you're not justified in believing. And the third says that it's never the case that P and not P are at the same time propositionally justified for you. And again, this is not uncontroversial, but lots of views of justification accept this. Okay, so, okay. so now with this in mind, remember our non-skeptical PIB Jill, I'm, taking, I'm assuming now that she is in a position to know that she's invited, but now from the first principle, it follows that the claim that she's invited is propositionally justified for her, from the third principle, it follows that the claim that she's not embedded is not propositionally justified for her. And from the second, it follows that the claim that she's not embedded is not doxastically justified for her. So note that um, this leads us to the conclusion that the very intuition that was supposed to underlie the New Evil Demon problem is actually incorrect. Okay, so. Uh, What this shows, I think there are different ways we could go, but it at least puts us in a dilemma where we have to either give up one of the principles about justification or give up (coughs) this position to no claim or uh, give up this intuition that non-skeptical BIV deal is justified. Okay, so in the last five minutes, I'm going to... talk about an implication to another debate, and that's a debate about luminosity. Okay, So in recent years, epistemologists have been very interested in this notion of luminosity. So call a condition C strongly luminous if whenever it obtains, you're in a position to know that it obtains. And whenever it fails to obtain, you're in a position to know that it fails to obtain. Okay, so Williamson has famously argued that no non-trivial condition is strongly luminous and other people disagree. Okay. Um, but there are some standards examples that everyone agree are sort of trivial cases of luminosity failure. So I'm actually only going to talk about the first one. We can talk about the second in discussion. But the first one is being embedded. Pretty much everyone says, well, clearly being invatted is not strongly luminous because BIV Jill is invatted and she's not in a position to know this. Okay, so one thing I want to say is that if my conclusion is right, we have to be a lot more careful about finding counterexamples to luminosity, right? It's not trivial that uh, um, this condition is not luminous, at least in the standard case of the brain in a vat Uh, At DIVGIL is in a position to know that she's in vat. Okay, so just to be clear, I don't in fact think that this condition is strongly luminous. I think there are other examples, examples of other brains in a vat that are in a less uh, stable or favorable situation uh, that will show that the condition is not strongly luminous, but I think we need to be pretty careful about what kinds of examples we need to show this. Okay, more interestingly, however, is this implication. So I think people on both sides of the luminosity debate have assumed that if a condition is strongly luminous, this gives you really strong powers. This means you have something like a magical algorithm, foolproof algorithm, that whenever you want to answer the question whether this condition holds or not, you'll always get the right answer. Okay? I think one thing this discussion shows is that this is the wrong way to think about luminosity. So assume all we have are the two situations of actual Jill and BIV Jill that I've discussed. No other scenarios. In this limiting case, the condition of being invited is going to be strongly luminous because either you're not invited, and you're in position to know that you're not invited, or you're BIV Jill, you are invited, you're in a position to know this. But note that it doesn't entail that either of them has this kind of magical algorithm, right? All we mean by saying that both of them are in a position to know is that if they use the right method in the right environment, they're going to gain knowledge. They don't have a magical algorithm that ensures they'll always use the right uh, belief-forming method uh, suitable for their environment. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, I think the epistemic externalist uh, um, discussions of skepticism have been misinterpreted, and once we realize this, this is gonna have all sorts of interesting implications to epistemology.
0: Now we uh, hand over to Aidan McGlynn for his reply. Um, thanks, Ofra, and uh, it's very nice to be here and not be doing uh, Peter's job again, um, so <laughs> it's a big relief. OK, um, here's Jane Austen's Emma soothing herself with an explanation of Mr. Elton's presumption in taking himself to be a suitable match for her. So she thinks, perhaps it was not fair to expect him to feel how very much he was her inferior in talent and all the elegances of mind. The very want of such a quality might prevent his perception of it. I think you can kind of think about the orthodox view on uh, what bad, you know, subjects in bad cases can know as kind of having the structure. So this is something that Ofra has already quoted. But here's Timothy Williamson, um, who's kind of the uh, poster boy for this kind of thought. If one is in the bad case, then one does not know that one is uh, not in the good case. Even if one pessimistically believes that one is not in a good case, one's belief does not constitute knowledge. Part of the badness of the bad case is that one cannot know how bad one's uh, case is. And this has been echoed by various people in the epistemology literature. This comes from a, um, a footnote in Afra's paper. So um, Nico Sillings, no subject in the bad case can figure out she's not in the good case. Uh, a reply to Sillings paper by myself and uh, Jadav Fratantonio Subjects in the bad case aren't in a position to know that they are. And then a passage I'll come back to you later from uh, Bernard Salo. The brain in the bat is presumably in no position to tell it lacks the evidence that it has hands. If it were, it could conclude that it's in a very unusual situation. And the tragedy of the brain's predicament is exactly that it's in no position to figure this out. This looks to me like a fairly rare point of agreement on debates around skepticism, justification, and knowledge between those in, broadly speaking, externalist camp and those in an internalist camp. Um, So they disagree, as I point out in the written version, about almost everything else. And they disagree with each other in the camps. But this, I think, lots of people would sign up to. The agreement might turn out to be relatively superficial. It may be that internalists and externalists come to such a consensus from very different angles. I think that's probably true. But most of them would sign up to it. Um, So from that point of view, it looks kind of inevitable that some philosopher was going to take a shot at it. Um, <laughs> and what Afra does in her paper is argue that at least uh, lots of externalists can and should break ranks on this issue. Um, they should accept that brains in the backs can know that they're invited. So what I want to do in this uh, talk, I'm not going to try and cover everything that was in my paper. Um, so. And I'm not even going to try and summarize it. I'm going to kind of focus in on the bits I was kind of least unhappy with, and also bits which kind of bring out a particular theme in the paper, which is, I think one thing we might want to do is to think about what kinds of challenges to that orthodox view are going to work in light of views about what it takes for a subject to be in a bad case. That's going to be the theme. What I try to avoid, though I'm tempted by them, are Objections of the form which are kind of go home, reliabilism, you're drunk, or go home, externalism, you're drunk. Because um, those don't seem like especially interesting challenges to what Afra is doing. She's not really trying to get a kind of, you know, I, I either don't know what internalism, externalism is, or I've got sympathies for internalism. I'm not really the target audience in that sense. And I think also there's just kind of uh, some tricky issues that come up. So that's not the kind of reply I want to make. It's meant to be more of a kind of internal challenge to how we might try and argue against this orthodoxy. So what I want to do is to try and argue that the conclusion that brains in a vats, that some brains and vats can know or are in a position to know that they're invited, I think might be plausible enough. I don't really have a particular issue with that conclusion. Um, I think it may not quite as cleanly as the paper suggests hit its intended target as represented by those quotes I've just gone through, in which appear in Ofra's paper as well. And then I want to talk about this uh, contention that this figure, the kind of more familiar Brain and the Bat figure, non-skeptical uh, B.I.V. Jill, that she's in a position to know that she's embatted, um, despite kind of sharing lots of features with the familiar brains and the bats we know and love. Um, that, I think, would bridge the gap I point out, in, or at least argue for in the first part of the paper. So if that conclusion were right in the right kind of way, I think I would make it, uh, make my first point kind of irrelevant. Um, and so what I'm going to argue is that this conclusion, again, I don't particularly have an, an issue with the conclusion, but the modality in, in a position to know, I think, kind of robs it of some of its significance, as at least i trying try and persuade you of. I'm going to start by sketching Ofra's argument as I understand it, and maybe um, give a bit more context to some of the. the the stuff I'm going to talk about later, give a little bit of the flavor of uh, the stuff that's coming in from Dave Chalmers in the argument. So as I've said, our first conclusion is that uh, it's not that uh, brain of can know that they're a brain of um, Rather, they can know they're invatted in this more general sense. Um, so let's say an agent is invatted if they have a cognitive system which receives its inputs from and sends outputs to a com- computational simulation of a world. Oh, sorry. So, uh, in the paper, a motivates us by suggesting that it would be strange uh, to think that quick reflection on your sense experiences might be enough for a BIV to know that there's specifically a brain in the back rather than a brain in a bottle or brain in a uh, suitcase or something else. I guess I have similar worries to the idea that quick reflection on your sense experiences might deliver knowledge of the more general thing, but it still seems fairly specific. You know that you're in rather than the victim of a Cartesian demon, or something else. Um, But again, that that feels a bit too much like the kind of internalist kicking in, and so I won't pursue this too much. So BIV Jill is, quote, a handless brain in the back, hooked up to computer, feeding her brain with electrical stimuli that make things appear to her, just as, or at least indistinguishably, from how they actually do. And Fry's going to argue that uh, at least some figure, uh, some brains and vats, particularly this figure, B.I.V. Jill can know that she's invited. So, as a kind of simplifying assumption, which I'm going to come back to, um, Afra follows Chalmers in assuming that quote, the computational process that feeds stimuli gives rise to an ontology of virtual objects. As she mentioned in her presentation, uh, Afra thinks that that's probably illimitable, and I think that's in some sense true, that you can get rid of the, the talk of virtual objects and put it more kind of parse out in terms of um, computational processes giving rise to certain appearances or something like that. On the basis of her VAT experiences, Biv Jill forms the belief that she has virtual hands, simulated hands generated by a computational process, and she infers on that basis that she's invatted. She's not just right that she has virtual hands and that she's invatted, her belief is formed by reliable processes. Um, and for the premise, it's the process roughly inferring what her virtual reality is like from her experiences in the back. And so, at least by reliabilism's lights, it's a good candidate to count as a piece of knowledge. Here's why: in an environment similar to that of Biff Jill, the experiences one has in the back are an extremely reliable guide to one's virtual reality, and thus the reliabilist has no reason to deny that Biff Jill's belief constitutes knowledge. Um, something I'm going to set aside, again, this is kind of, again, trying not to just make this into an old version of internalism, externalism, or something that looks too similar to it. Um, offer our uh, offers different descriptions of the psychology that might underlie the kind of beliefs in question. Um, I at least have this reaction that they make us seem pretty irrational, um, at least described at the kind of level <laughs> we got it, rather than as um, a really good candidate to be somebody who's got knowledge. So she seems to have these beliefs on the basis of experiences that seem to me to kind of come out of nowhere. They remind me a bit of, they're not exactly the same, but something not dissimilar to Norman the Clairvoyant. Um, there are differences. Norman has no relevant experiences, and if Jill does. And all of this should be sensitive to the considerations that Ofra goes through in her paper and her presentation about, well, what really is the phenomenology and the content of of Jules' experiences, and I'm, I haven't really engaged with that here, but I at least have a kind of um, initial worry that um, you're just having the disposition to form the belief you have virtual hands on the base of handy experiences doesn't sound particularly promising. As I said, there's much more in Offer's paper to do uh, than I'd like to. I'll skip over this. So that's the argument in its initial form. A lot of the rest of Ofra's paper involves contending that issues which, at least on the face of it, might have seemed pretty pertinent to the assessment of that argument, don't really have all that much effect. Um, so for example, issues around the content phenomenology of uh, Biv-Jill's experiences, um, the precise shape of the reliableist view we're kind of plugging in to generate the results, and the import of content, externalism, and other kinds of externalist moves, like contextualism and um, safety conditions and sensitivity conditions and things like that, that these don't block the conclusion. Offrat um, presents that as a kind of, this kind of latitude in the assumptions the argument needs to work as a strength. Um, I'm not totally convinced it is. I, I suspect that we probably do need to take more strong stances on these kind of issues than uh, to make the argument work. It does make the argument a little, well, at least I find it kind of hard to evaluate because you've got this initial argument and then this uh, kind of structure of addressing what you might have thought were going to be objections and trying to assess whether they really do have an import on the initial argument or not. Um, But I do think there's a a few things we can kind of say without getting into the weeds on these issues. And the first thing I want to say is I I couldn't help but feel there was something of a bait and switch in the argument. that. what we get um, as what looks like the initial stated target is the consensus around the claim um, articulated by Williamson and others that the subject in a bad case and I take this to be um, a kind of skeptical scenario um, can't know that she's in a bad case that 's what the quote from Williamson said Ofrah's conclusion that some brains and bats can know that they're batted looks pretty consistent with this on the face of it. They might turn out not to be, but it there doesn't seem like they're immediately intentioned that showing that some brains and bats can know they're invatted just defeats the thing that Williamson said or anything like that. For two reasons there's an issue about the content of what can be known. Um, is it that you know that you're in the bad case or is it that you know you're batted? Williamson, I think, was interested in um, knowing that you're in the bad case in that very kind of terminology. Um, I have a quote in the paper which suggests that that's really what he was interested in. I care less about that, let's have the issue be what kinds of subjects can know that they're invited in the Chalmers uh, Magador sense. What I'm interested in is the kinds of subjects that we're focusing on, whether it are te- dealing with subjects in the bad case, in some sense, or just mere brains and backs. Um, and I think that um, depending on uh, certain assumptions, those issues look kind of different. It's not just the same question. Those categories are usually taken to significantly overlap, Um, but they they, they don't seem to be like they don't totally overlap. Kind of obvious way to think about that is there are at least some subjects in bad cases in the relevant sense as skeptical scenarios um, that are not invited. So perhaps the victim of some kind of Cartesian demon is in a bad case but not invited. Um, But I also think, at least on certain views, it looks like there can be. Um, in vatted subjects, and in particular brains and bats, who are not in, an, in any interesting sense in a bad case in any kind of sceptical scenario. Um, so let's say some more about what it takes to be in a bad case to try and substantiate this a bit. Um, Dave Chalmers offers the following criterion. So a bad case, or he's talking about sceptical hypotheses, but as I say, I'm using those more or less interchangeably. It's a hypothesis that I cannot rule out and one which would falsify most of my beliefs if it were true. And I think that's in at least one way too strong. Um, as Williamson points out in his uh, chapter on scepticism, building into sceptical hypotheses that you can't rule them out looks incredibly concessive to scepticism from the get-go. That's something they should be earning, that you can't rule out, that you don't, for example, have knowledge or evidence that rules out that you're not in the vat or you're not in one of these hypotheses. I don't think that's something we should build into the notion of a sceptical hypothesis or bad case. So I think, um, despite other disagreements with Williamson, he's right about that. So let's go with what Williamson suggests instead. Um, So bad cases are ones where it appears to one just like, or at least a lot like it would appear to one in the good case. So here's what he says. As far as content externalism permits, things appear to one exactly the same way in the good and bad cases. I have no idea why it's coming in in a weird order. But okay. Um, so let's take bad cases to be ones in which a subject has mostly false beliefs due to uh, things appearing misleadingly just as they would have done in the corresponding good case. Um, I, I think that's a fairly standard way of thinking about what it is for something to be a sceptical scenario or a bad case. Misleading experiences or misleading appearances giving rise to subject forming the same beliefs as the counterpart in the good case or as close as content externalism allows. And while the person in the good case gets things right, the person in the bad case is systematically misled and has a bunch of false beliefs. Not everyone will accept that the kind of standard uh, brain bat um, fits this characterization. As you can see by thinking about this kind of Chalmers reinterpretation of embodiment scenarios, so here's what he says, the brain bat scenario and embankment scenarios more generally um, are not sceptical scenarios at all, they're metaphysical hypotheses, they're hypotheses about the underlying nature of reality. So although Chalmers holds that we can't rule out the environment uh, hypothesis in some sense, um, taken as a metaphysical hypothesis, um, he argues that recognising that it's a metaphysical hypothesis in this sense <coughs> rules out it's being a skeptical hypothesis in the relevant sense. So here's what he says. A brain in the vat is not massively deluded, at least if it's always been in the vat. Neo, this is uh, the figure from the Matrix, so he's not quite a brain in the vat; he's a uh, plugged in body in the bat. Um Neo does not have massively false beliefs about the external world. Instead, invited beings have largely correct beliefs about their world. If so, the Matrix hypothesis is not a skeptical hypothesis and possibility does not undercut everything I think I know. Why well, I think Neo will have mostly, mostly true beliefs? Because the hypothesis is one about the underlying nature of hands to song and so on. These are virtual objects and virtual locations, objects constituted by computational processes. But none of that kind of, you know, suppose Neo's making some metaphysical mistakes, none of that calls into question Neo's beliefs that, uh, in the existence or the behaviour of these objects, uh, hands, Song, his desk, and so on. So Chalmers finishes. I still think I cannot rule out that I am in a matrix. So he thinks it's a live uh, metaphysical hypothesis. But I think that even if I am in a matrix, I'm still in Toussaint, I'm still sitting on my desk, and so on. So the hypothesis that I'm in the matrix is not a skeptical hypothesis. So I'm going to take that to mean it's not, uh, Neil is not in a bad case. So if we go back to Afra's argument, um, as I'm interpreting it, um, the argument, Biv-Jill doesn't even seem to have the same beliefs as actual Jill, and instead forming true and reliable beliefs about her virtual reality. Or she's forming true and reliable beliefs where we parse out the virtual ontology. She's forming true and reliable beliefs about how the appearances are generated by computational processes, or something like that. And that's the basis on which she infers that she's invited. Um, If you're in an anti-skeptical mood, you might add that if you think that actual Jill has a root from her beliefs about um, hands to her not being impacted, I think there is some symmetry there with uh, Biv-Jill's situation. So Biv-Jill, as I understand, is going around relatively epistemically successfully forming beliefs about virtual reality. And I think there's no obvious reason I can see that you might Deny there'll be a kind of parallel route that Jill can use to get from her belief that she has virtual hands to the belief that she is invited So in that sense, there does seem to be some kind of symmetry here. Um, but I, I worry this is a, a kind of um, a kind of version of uh, the brain the bat scenario that loses contact with the initial. <laughs> claims about what subjects in bad cases can know. Since, as Chalmers argued, and as I try and say in the paper as well, it doesn't look like the Jill so understood as in any kind of bad case. She's symmetrical to actual Jill in that she's uh, going around forming true, indeed reliable, beliefs about her environment. But she's not forming the false belief she has fleshy hands that she shares with actual Jill. She's formed the belief she has virtual hands. Um, so I think the, the quotes which uh, Ofra argue, argues, uh, sorry, offers as like, illustrating her target, this kind of uh, claimed asymmetry in externalist responses to skepticism, look like they concern subjects in bad cases in this sense. So I won't talk about this too much. But <coughs> Williamson, for example, as you've seen, explicitly puts his claim in terms of um, what can be known by a subject in the bad case. And he understands subjects in bad cases pretty much as I've done. Um, so he assumes, as he puts it, perhaps overly generously, that content externalism is consistent with grasping the relevant propositions in skeptical scenarios. And then he says, in the bad cases, things still appear as they ordinarily do, but are some other way. One still believes P, but P is false. So very much the understanding I've had, um, subjects in bad cases are misled by appearances into forming false beliefs, which are um, at least very close to the beliefs formed by their counterparts in the good case. Uh, the other quotes that I mentioned, Sillands or myself and Frat Antonio, I think are just meant to be kind of uh, parasitic on what Williamson says. The Sallow quote's uh, slightly different because it is explicitly framed in terms of brains and backs rather than bad cases. Um, recall the brain and back is presumably in no position to tell. It lacks the evidence at its hands. If it were, it could conclude that it's in a very unusual situation. And the tragedy of the brain's predicament is exactly, it's in no position to figure this out. Um, but Salo, although he doesn't use this terminology of bad cases, makes assumptions which um, show that that's what he's interested in. So he stipulates his counterpart who's a brain in the back, shares his experiences of hands but has a false belief that it's hands. So in a bad case as well. So. My first claim is that the question of whether a subject in a bad case can know that they're invited just doesn't seem to be the same question of whether um, certain kinds of brains and bats can know they're invited, um, where we don't kind of pay attention to whether or not they meet the conditions for as being in a bad case. And I worry that Afra's discussion moves quite freely between quotes from Williamson about bad cases and quotes from other people and conclusions about what su- some brains and bats can know. I think we need to at least go more slowly. Um, so I worry that the conclusion of Fra Reaches isn't quite the one which um, shows that the orthodox claim is false. So O'Fra focuses on this latter question of what brains and Bats can know um, or what they're in a position to know. And she makes claims that you know the uh, epistemology literature standardly makes assumptions about that. I'm not really sure it does. I think that. The philosophical debate around scepticism and externalism has been conditioned by an assumption or a position about what subjects in a bad case, in that more specific um, sense, I've kind of tried to get a handle on, can know. Um, Okay, so as I said, I think there's an an argument that appears in a Farah's paper that would close this gap if it um, worked in the right kind of way. So I want to consider it. I say here it's one of the central moves. I'm not really sure it is, but it's at least very kind of relevant to what I just said. So uh, O'Fra introduces us to non-skeptical Biv-Jill. So this is a more familiar version of um, Biv-Jill, who's straightforwardly taken in by the appearances in the back, and so um, forms the same kind of beliefs as actual Jill in the good case. So she forms the belief that she has hands, that she's in Oxford, um, and so on. Um, she may go on to form, if she's sufficiently philosophically minded, the belief that she's not embatted. O'Fry argues that uh, non skeptical um, Biv Jill is also in a position to know that she has virtual hands and that she's embatted, even though she doesn't know any of this stuff because her um, false beliefs about non virtual reality. Um, <laughs> prevent her from actually having that knowledge they prevent her from actually having the knowledge but don't block the conclusion that she's in a position to know just as the first version of Biv Jill who is forming beliefs about virtual reality is in a position to know so non-skeptical of Jill looks I think like she's in a bad case even by my lights and so if ofrahs right that looks like it closes the gap some uh of Vart, who counts as being in a bad case in the sense I distinguish, and which I think is relevant to these claims from Williamson and others, counts as uh, able to know in some sense that uh, she's invited, able to know in the sense of is in a position to know. That gives some kind of reading of that claim where it comes out true. What does in a position to know mean here? Um, as I understand it, the idea is roughly everything epistemic is kind of in place for one to have knowledge. And your doxastic state needs to start playing ball, too, if it hasn't already done so. So um, here's one uh, version of this. Maybe this, uh, you know, I think Bofra thinks this buys into the, kind of the magical view that she was talking about at the end, but at least illustrates the general structure. Um, if one is in a position to know a proposition P, and one does, all one is in a position to do, to determine whether P, then one knows P. All the epistemic stuff is set in place, and you've just got to go through a process of like coming to a belief, or doing as much as you can to come to a view on the matter. That leaves the modality of in a position to know rather open, and Ofra flags that as a a really relevant issue here, and I think it is kind of, um, for my purposes, the crucial issue. Um, So one thing Ofra says, I think rightly, is that we shouldn't think it's enough in a position to know that p—that it's metaphysically possible that you could know that p you've got to share much more with your actual knowing counterparts um, than than that to count as being in a position to know. That's a position of, uh, a notion of being in a position to know where I'm I'm in a position to know all kinds of things, it's it's very permissive and to get an interesting play we need to um, say more about what I must share with my knowing counterparts to to count as being in a position to know. And as I understand, what O'Friar suggests is the factors that need to be held in common need to be epistemic rather than psychological. Um, O'Friar acknowledges that distinction is not entirely sharp. I guess one thing I'm I'm trying to push is the idea it's not very sharp at all. so, just to kind of continue the thought, one is in a position to know some proposition when one has the same epistemic backing for believing that as your knowing counterpart. That's a sense in which it's not enough to just be you know, in a position to metaphysically get yourself in a position to know. You've got to have epistemic backing in common, um, but uh, there's, there's allowed to be kind of psychological variance. The upshot is that so long as the difference between non-skeptical biv jill and the original biv jill um who O’Fraz already argued is in a position to know that she's invited as long as that difference is merely psychological we should think they're on a par with respect to being in a position to know that they're invited if the differences are just psychological rather than to do with epistemic backing then um, we're home and dry and again, as I said, my theme is kind of what would it take to give a kind of a, a really kind of a solid challenge to the orthodoxy as represented by Williamson and these other quotes. And again, I worry that we don't quite get that out of um, this so far. So um, I think, you know, a, a, again, I'm not taking issue with the conclusion here. I think that that might give a sense in which. Um, Non skeptical Biv Jill is in a position to know she's invited by worry. It's not one that really kind of challenges the thought at the heart of what I take the kind of orthodoxy to be about. Um, I think that it is plausible, as I've said, that non skeptical Biv Jill is in a bad case. I think it's plausible in part because we're assuming particular things about her psychology. And in particular, we're assuming that she has lots and lots of shared false beliefs or as close to shared as context externalism will allow with actual Jill, who's just epistemically successful and in a, a kind of normal world. So I think you know, we assume taking, she's taken in by appearances and so forms roughly the same beliefs as actual Jill, that she's Han, she's in Tucson, she's not in Bakke, and so on. Um, and I think that, as I've been suggesting, that's kind of a crucial feature of what it is to be in a bad case. It's not an accident that that's the kind of case we usually focus on. That's the kind of cases that Williamson and others have been making claims about. So, um, yeah. So I've already suggested her possession of these kind of mistaken beliefs is really part of what it takes to count as occupying um, a bad case at all. And actually, in the paper, I messily and not very satisfactorily argue that these kind of beliefs do uh, suggest there's an obstacle even by external slights to her um, coming to a knowledgeable belief that she's invited. If non-skeptical Viv Jill is in a position to know she's invited only in the sense that were we to relax the conditions on what belief she has so that she no longer counted as being in a bad case, then she would be able to, then she could acknowledge that she's in a bad case or that she's invited. I guess I don't really think that uh, cuts at the heart of the orthodox claim. As I understand the orthodoxy, um, the idea is that the conditions in a bad case are so unconducive to the possession of knowledge um, that subjects in them can't even know how badly off they are. Part of the badness of the bad case is you can't know how bad your case is. That was the Williamson line. Um, And that's why I take Williamson and myself and and others to be kind of agreeing on. Were the subjects not held back by these conditions, including doxastic conditions, they might fare better. It might be that once we relax the conditions on which beliefs the subject needs to have to count as being in a bad case, um, they could come to know lots more stuff, and particularly could come to know stuff about the batty predicament that they're in. Um, I don't deny that. It's just that, uh, and I think we can introduce um, a modal notion in a position to know, which kind of captures the sense that, were uh, non-skeptical Biv-Jill um, more like original Biv-Jill, um, in that she had these different set of beliefs about virtual reality, um, then I think you know we, we could say that non-skeptical Biv-Jill is in a position to know, um, and uh, in that sense could be said to be in a position to know they're invited. But I, I just don't really see that that's a challenge to the externalist and more generally the kind of internalist orthodoxy. Um, it looks like a real challenge would be, um, despite still being in the unconducive conditions for being in a bad case, the subject is, in some tight sense, able to know that they're invited. Not that you know, if we relax the psychological constraints um, and keep, fix something epistemic, that you could know. Um, so yeah, so I think that our kind of real challenge to the orthodoxy, as I understand it, would be one that shows that the conditions constitutive of painting as being in a bad case are not, after all, a real obstacle to knowing that you're in that kind of predicament, you're in a or something like that. And I still think, after reading can go paper, that that's actually going to be quite hard to do. So in that sense, I'm siding with the orthodoxy here. Thanks.